Hello and welcome back to Rugby Offloads. I'm Pat Clifton. This is episode two. Let's dive right in. It's event week, um, so probably a little short intro for me. Um, let's get straight to it with the good person of the week. This week, that is Nate Osborne, head coach of Old Glory DC, stepping in as the interim after the go of Andrew Douglas midseason. Of course, Nate was let go earlier in the season himself by the NOLA Gold. He had been their coach since the beginning. The lone uh, founding coach left of Major League Rugby to still be around, last one standing. Um, it's great to see a guy, a good guy get a second shot, and I think everyone who knows Nate Osborne would agree that that's exactly what he is. Um, a Metropolis man, that's how I first came to know him. He was playing Division Three. He was the player coach for the Metropolis D3 team at their national championships. It's got to be like 2010, 2011-ish in Glendale. Uh, I remember talking to him then, and and uh, got pulled into Mike Tolkien's staff in 2015, I believe it was. Uh, went to the World Cup, and uh, or maybe you know, slightly before that, and uh, went on to the World Cup in 2015 as part of Mike Tolkien's staff. Tolkien did a great job of reaching down and getting some grassroots people. Um, uh, opportunities when he was uh, the head coach of the Eagles, and uh, Nate Osborne was one of his charges, and he let frog from there to the head coach of Nolan Gold and it's great to see him get a good opportunity and have some success and see Old Glory DC who had a tough start to the season have some fun at the end of it um, so that is my good person of the week my good thing of the week is going to be a little bit of a tease and it is the big announcement coming from PR7's um, I love uh, team formation if you will I love off season team formation uh, institutions and systems if you will, and uh, I don't know when PR7 is going to exactly announce what it's doing, but you're going to find out this week who's going to be doing some of the team formation and how some of the team formation is going to be going on. So I think it's an exciting announcement for PR7s. Um, so look out for that. That's my good thing of the week. Um, big headline. Big headline this week. I think it's absolutely massive that Arm uh, Navy, boy, that's a what a kerfuffle there. Navy, the U.S. Naval Academy, the midshipmen, the g- fighting Gavin Hickey's, um, are going to move on and become a varsity program. So Navy becoming, following in the footsteps of Army, Army, uh, the last football bowl division, big time uh, program, if you will, NCAA traditional sports program uh, or institution to make its Rugby varsity was Army in 2014. Navy follows suit in 2022. And uh, that is an absolutely massive uh, uh, news and uh, step for college rugby, for American rugby. Uh, It is very rare that institutions of this magnitude, of this clout, um, of this measure take rugby on varsity. You know, I'm thinking off the top of my head, we've got Cal, we've got Army, we've got Navy on the men's side. Um, and that's about it. On the women's side, obviously, we have a lot more with the women's initiative in the NCAA. We have most of the Ivy League. We have um, a number of other large institutions that have some clout um, and some stature. But on the men's side, um, you really only have Army, Navy, and Cal that spring to mind. Forgive me if I'm uh, obviously missing someone. So this is a huge, uh, you know, huge development for the sport. Um, you look at Army, they went varsity in 2014. They had been one of the blue bloods of college rugby for generations, for decades. And it wasn't until eight years after they go varsity this spring that they win a national championship. Army winning its first national championship under head coach Matt Sherman this spring, defeating St. Mary's in the final. Um so, you know, Navy following suit shortly thereafter. Was it causality? I don't think so. Navy, you'd been hearing for years that that was in the works. It was only a matter of time that it would eventually, through the years of bureaucracy, would uh, uh, go varsity, and now it has. Air Force, you're officially on the clock. 
So we need Army, Air Force, and Navy to go varsity, and I think that that would change things significantly for for all of those programs, which has trickle-down effects into grassroots and into high schools and um, upwards and into MLR and into national teams. So um, absolutely massive development. Air Force national champions in 1989 beating Long Beach, in 1990 beating Army, and in 2003 beating Harvard, um, their last national championship under Rob Holder. Another Metropolis man that's two Metropolis name drops in the intro. Um, so Air Force, uh, an incredibly vaunted program. And I can't help but think of John Prusmack and his contributions to Air Force and Army as we look at how they've gone varsity. Um, Prusmack, of course, uh, I worked for him for 10 years. He is the uh, founder of United World Sports, and uh, they bought USA 7s and really built it into the Las Vegas 7s and the huge and massive event that we know it as today, um, or before it moved to L.A., what we knew it as. And then he was the founder of the Collegiate Rugby Championship, um, the massive tournament that uh, it is event week of that we've got going on down in New Orleans. I mean, for 10 years, he founded that thing in 2010, put it on national television, put it in and moved it to Philadelphia after Columbus, Ohio that first year. I mean, Nate Ebner, numerous Olympians, uh, national team players, uh, of course, Nate Ebner, the Super Bowl champion. Um, it really became a huge platform for players, for coaches. Alex Magleby was the head coach at Dartmouth and then sprung board from two TRC national championships to the national team to GMs of the national team to now owner and CEO and GM of the New England Free Jacks. Uh, CEO or the CRC became a massive platform for everyone in the game of college rugby um, or American rugby, whether it was referees or it was players or coaches, um, just to be able to go on national television and to play in a major league stadium in a proper tournament and run a proper commercial event with real sponsorship year after year after year to his loss. John, you know, losing over $11 million across the his time investing in rugby. Um, this is a rugby man who pulled it out of his own pocket and put it on the line. And, um, you know, I can't help but think his contributions for Warrior Field there at West Point and for the Prusmac Rugby Complex there in Annapolis didn't have some significant um you know, impact and, you know, the platform that he gave and his events and his companies gave and rugby mag and rugby today and the coverage that we gave to his programs. I can't help but imagine that, uh, uh, all of that helped in army and Navy going varsity. Um, and I'm reminded of that this week as we have the collegiate rugby championship carrying on his legacy, John Prusmack, um, a massive event. This is something that he founded. Um, you know, the IOC announced that, Rugby was coming back to the Olympics in 2009. A year later, John put his money on the line and founded the CRC. And um, this is his legacy. And I am uh, honored to be able to carry it on um, through National Collegiate Rugby as their sevens commissioner um, and to work with the Prusmac family, um, who, which we very much still do. Patty is sending the trophies on down and sending a copy of the scrum, um, John's painting, which you can uh, buy a raffle ticket to at uh, the CRC and try to win a print of John painting the scrum john was a renowned artist as well as a, a founder and investor and in, in rugby everything man and johnny appleseed of rugby um uh, we still work very closely with them and, and at ncr i have an incredible team and i'm very blessed to work with an incredible team um and uh, a group of of very hard-working capable um feisty if you will uh rugby do-gooders and i'm very excited to get down to new orleans and get to work with them and, and welcome 111 teams um to the home of the nola gold at the largest 
rugby-only stadium in North America for North America's largest ever collegiate rugby tournament this weekend on CBS Sports Network and the Rugby Network. And uh, while I'm down there, no doubt I'll be thinking about John Presmack quite a bit. Uh, We'll have Army and Air Force down there competing. Um, You can watch them live uh, on Saturday on CBS Sports Network. So tune in, please, if you will. And uh, absolutely massive news in college rugby and American rugby. Congratulations, Navy. Congratulations, Gavin Hickey. Congratulations, the McAuliffe's. Congratulations, uh, Prusmax. Congratulations, everyone ever involved in the history. Congratulations, Mike Flanagan, the man who was the tent pole under Navy rugby for many, many years. Um, congratulations to Navy rugby and all the mids out there um, on going varsity. Um, that's it. That's everything. Uh, guys, this week the interview is with Tristan Lewis, U.S. Rugby Hall of Famer, um, longtime manager of the national teams, uh, now works um, with Rashard Chadwick and his group um, uh, in the wake of ARPTC's closing. Um, tip of the cap to Julia McCoy and everything ARPTC did for the women's game specifically and for the national team pathways for so many years. Um, thank you for your service, and thank you for Rashard Chadwick for carrying it on and Tristan Lewis for carrying it on with him. Tristan, um, I talked to him about the World Cup coming to the United States because Tristan has kind of a unique perspective having worked on the host committee in Chicago for the 1994 World Cup which has been compared and been um, uh, extrapolated to or talked about or talked around in relation to this, these coming Rugby World Cups of 2031 and 2033 so so much. He worked that and then he has worked so close to the sun at USA Rugby um, and around in and around the national office and its heads of state and all of its executives uh, on the budget side, on the player side. He knows where all the bodies are buried. Tristan Lewis, a.k.a. lovingly, I think, T-Bags, um, is the man on the interview today. So please enjoy this conversation with Tristan Lewis. And this weekend, please enjoy the CRC, the legacy of John Prusmack, the Collegiate Rugby Championship, May Madness. And go fill out a bracket at maymadness7s.com. That's where you can get all of the schedule everything else and uh, tune into pr sevens as well um i think there's some exciting news and if you like a uh, uh <clears throat> draft then you might like the news um coming this week as well as some coaches who you might see coaching at the crc this weekend being announced um uh for pr sevens uh without any further ado this is tristan lewis and your interview for Rugby Offloads. If you like this, please like, share, comment. And if you want to join the show, if you have a story to share, if you have a question to ask, if you have anything to contribute, anything you'd like to hear from us, please email or text uh, patrickeclifton at gmail.com, 816-506-4904, a voicemail um, or a voice recording, or text me a question. Um, if you have anything you'd like to share, anything you'd like to hear on the podcast or a question you'd like to have answered, we'd love to have some uh, fan interaction. Without any further do finally i mean it this time tristan lewis the world cup is coming here and when i thought of the world cup i feel like most of our conversations have been hazy around a few guinnesses you know late night after an event um but i know that you had some involvement and quite a bit of intimate knowledge about you know the 94 world cup and there's been so much connection that's been made between the rugby world cup and that one um, 2031 and that one that I, I'd like to get your perspective on it. And of course, you know, you spent a million years um, with and in and around the national team and USA rugby in the national office as a manager, you know, to the tune of being able to become a hall of famer. So I just thought that you would have a pretty unique perspective on the world cup. So I want to talk to you about the world cup news. Sounds great. mate. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's an amazing, uh, it's amazing that we actually got one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when we got one, they gave us two. So, yeah. You know, um, 
I'll, I'll say that um, as happy as I am for us to get them, I also have concerns. I don't know that. I don't know that we we USA rugby US rugby players um, are ready for a World Cup in the sense that um, it's so difficult to have a successful one. Um, you know, in the last years or in the last three or four, I think there's only been two that have actually made any money for the host nation. And that's a concern, right? When, you know, we didn't do very well financially out of the 20, uh, what was that? 2018 Rugby World Cup sevens in San Francisco. You know, we had an amazing event and we can do the event. We can make, we can do the folder up, but did we make any money? And my understanding is no. <laughs> um, right. Quite the opposite. And, and this is, and this is now a, an even bigger risk factor. Um, you know, plus venues, you know, venues are going to be hard. I mean, I know we're going to stick it in a lot of, you know, we're probably going to lean on MLS and, you know, and NFL stadiums and that, but there aren't, you know, it probably means we'll have to end up getting, just like we had to get special dispensation to play the All Blacks in Soldier Field, I I, I take it that, you know, World Rugby or World Cup Limited that, that uh, approved the U.S. as a, you know, as a host nation, have taken to the fact that a bunch of our fields will probably be what most people would consider to be undersized. As you know, I mean, I don't suddenly see us being able to find an extra, call it twenty yards, in every NFL stadium to make them look a lot more like Twickenham than, you know, than an NFL stadium. So it'd be interesting to see. I mean, I know what happened in '94. It, it required the removal of the six lower rows rows of seating from soldier field before fifa would allow a world cup match to be played at soldier field so i i just hope that you know that we don't fall foul of any of that type of stuff and that and that the business model for it um is financially truly viable you know um because i hate to say it but American rugby is full of great ideas and great things that haven't been financially viable and have disappeared pretty quick. Um, so let's set and, up. And, I have a, I have a couple of follow-ups in that that I hope I can remember, but let's set it up a little bit. So like Tristan, you, what, what you've been a manager for how many, I think the first time I may have met you was, were you in uh, Kingston, Ontario when Tolks was first, uh, were you at the bed bug, uh, trip to Kingston, Ontario? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I took over my, I, I took over, um, full-time management of the Eagles in 2001. Okay. So was that Eddie um, O'Sullivan or was that pre O'Sullivan? No, no, that's, that's Duncan Hall. Okay. <laughs> so talk me through your coaches, Duncan Hall. So I've, um, well, Tom Billups, Duncan Hall, um, actually, in the order, Duncan Hall, Tom Phillips, Tom Billups. Um, then, uh, then I came. Then I went away because the program was unstable. We'd gone bankrupt, and no one could convince me that we had budget for the men's national team. Yet we were committing to a whole bunch of things, and I was meant to. I mean, at the, at the same time that Tom Billups resigned his role as head coach, I 
I basically resigned my role as manager because a review of the finances in 2006 said that we didn't have any money and we had all these grandiose plans and I wasn't prepared to risk players' livelihoods on a whim and a prayer. And they pulled it off. I give them credit for that. They did pull it off, much to my surprise, I'll be honest and say. But obviously we went through a pretty lean patch in 2006, 2007, yet we'd been on a pretty good climb out of, you know, I'm going to say out of after 2002, going to the 2003 World Cup and then 2003 going onwards, rebuilding the squad, getting ready for 2007, we'd had a pretty successful um, period of time with the national team, you know, which then obviously we went through the lean patch, you know, um, I didn't get to work with Scott Johnson, um, and, but then I came back when, when Eddie was in was invited to be the head coach or took the job as a head coach. I was brought in um, to manage that program. And obviously I started with Eddie. I did 2011 World Cup with Eddie and then obviously Tolks was appointed. Um, and I worked with Tolks right the way through till I re- walked away from the, or retired from the men's national team in October of 2015 after the 2015 World Cup. Um, and obviously in between times I'd done Women's Sevens World Cup and Men's Sevens World Cups and all that other stuff, you know, apart and, from sitting on the board. And what was your relationship to the 94 Soccer World Cup and, and uh, soccer administration? Okay, so in 94, um, I, I worked with, uh, a, I worked in a group that handled the public relations and media relations for, um, well, for U.S. soccer with the World Cup and the two venues, the venues that we were most associated with were Soldier Field and um, Ann Arbor, Detroit, basically, or whatever the the bowl stadium was that we grew the grass outside. Okay. <laughs> we grew the grass. Was that University of Michigan? Yeah, we grew the Ann Arbor, Michigan. We grew the, we grew the field outside because at that time no one had a, I'm going to put it, an artificial surface that any, any international games would, could be played on. So that stadium had, had artificial turf inside the old, the old fashioned, real nasty stuff mm-hmm. um, compared to what we have today. And that uh, we grew the grass in the car park and then we wheeled it in, in these tubs and put all the tubs together. And, you know, and, and we'd been told by the grass expert that we had six weeks of life and lo and behold, was he right? I mean, we literally grew it, got it where it was, wheeled it in the stadium, literally wheeled it in, put it in place. Three days later, played the first game on it. And then by the time we were done, by the time the World Cup was over, that grass was dead and buried. It wasn't even savable if you took it back outside and gave it some sunshine and some water. It yeah. was truly buried. <laughs> so, yeah. So. Essentially the same process for Vegas Sevens for many years when they would bring in the grass and plop it on top of Sam Boyd's artificial turf. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I mean, and and the you know the the good news about that grass was that when when you put it in Sam Boyd, when you picked it up, you could actually put it back outside, and I would say probably sixty percent of it grew into being the fields that most people warmed up on, and 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 what the you know invitation was played on. A lot of yeah. those were playing on the grass in the previous year that had been in the state. Oh, that's fantastic! I didn't even really think about that, but that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the greenest grass that you saw in 
at the Invitational was the grass from the previous year that had been in the stadium. Ah, brilliant. So that, that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, because what else? We, I mean, you put so much effort into digging it and into getting it in there, yeah. getting it done the right way. And then, you know, you've only really put it all in there for, I'm going to call it for 10 days. So even if it's, even if its root structure is starting to suffer, it's nowhere near as bad as it having been put somewhere, you know, without, you know, without any sun or, or, or water going on it, like it was in Ann Arbor, you know, where it yeah. just literally sat there, you know? Yeah. Um, but the, yeah. So, I mean, that grass went outside and, you know, that, that would, to me was going to be one of the things that when we decided to go with art, you know, with the, with the contemporary version of a turf field in at Las Vegas, one of the things that I thought would happen over a period of time would be that our warm-up pitches would slowly but surely get worse and worse the longer we had the turf field inside. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. and, and that's why, you know, when there was talk of moving everything to, you know, up to the new stadium, you know, for the Raiders, um, you know, why that, that was starting to make a lot of sense because, yeah. you know, that was going to be – so, yeah, so, I mean – Anyways. Yeah, when you see all these, I mean, uh, when you see all the solutions that we brought about as a rugby nation, we can do this stuff. I just hope that we can do it profitably. Well, a couple of dovetails. One is, how big is the pitch at Soldier Field for those, you know, for the All Blacks games? Um, how how small is it? Well, <laughs> you, you, the comment would be, the comment would be, do you want the official version? Or, I want the or, truth, Tristan. <laughs> the, I mean, it was. It took both teams and World Rugby to sign off that it was okay to play. Okay, and you you think that that would be that's a bigger issue across America stadiums than people are probably thinking it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, we we if you remember when we played Churchill Cup matches at Toyota Park, the old home of the Chicago Fire. You know, we we still had an undersized field, and that was on a field that was that was a soccer field. Everybody forgets that soccer fields don't aren't as long or as wide, generally speaking, as a rugby field. Right. So, so if you unless you get a deal done with the with the original owner slash builder constructor of the facility, whereby you have that situation. Where you can expand over the lines of the soccer field, um, then you know you're always going to be undersized. That reminds me, uh, if anybody has any connections to Princeton rugby, one of your alums is building like a seventy million dollar, eleven thousand seat soccer stadium for the women's professional team in Kansas City. Uh, I need you to connect me to them so we can get the parameters right before they start construction. So that's the note I'm making here, Tristan. So someone connect me to the rugby player building this stadium, please, in the Princeton world. Um, so that's an issue. I mean, look, I, here's the other. Let me just – this is the concept, right? So, you know, allegedly World Rugby dropped like $37 million in Japan leading up into that World Cup, and that money is supposed to seep down into the grassroots and build these systems and build these infrastructure. Legacy is the term that they use that will, you know, stick around and, and, and make this impact so that rugby has got all these seeds in the ground to grow after the fact, right? That's allegedly what was supposed to happen in San Francisco in the wake of, uh, uh, of the 2018 World Cup. Probably unfair with COVID to say that it didn't happen, um, but I don't know that we've seen any evidence that it did. Um, so probably, you know, 
let's go ahead and put an asterisk on that one. But the concept is that, you know, and they, they mentioned 500 to 600 million is what they're going to need to run this thing, right? So the, the, the concept is a bunch of that's going to be lopped off and it's going to fertilize American rugby and, you know, the grassroots is just going to get more and more resource poured into it. And we'll, at the end of this thing, even if USA Rugby loses money, um, we'll have gained a lot. And maybe on the aggregate, we'll be more in the, you know, in the positive of that. Um, and that we'll we'll be able to use this as a slingshot to the MLR having you know their own stadiums across the board and having sold out seasons and and becoming a legitimate sport and and rugby will be able to seep into the culture. What do you make of that narrative? And if do you, do you think it's possible or is is that even how it worked with soccer from your perspective? And and what do you make of that narrative that that seems so- to be out there? The narrative's different between soccer and rugby just because, for argument's sake, when the Soccer World Cup was um, presented to the US, to the US, it was presented because, for argument's sake, where I live in Illinois, Illinois Youth Soccer Association had 180,000 members. Right. That's, that's more than all of American rugby. And... And the world realised that if you have 180,000 kids under the age of 16 playing soccer in one state, you can probably convince their mum and dad to go buy, we'll call it 30,000 jerseys of of non-US teams. So, for argument's sake, one of the largest events in 94 in Chicago was the Greece-Bulgaria game. It shut down. It Greek Town was a party for a week in Chicago. We've never. We don't see stuff like that happening for the U.S. in soccer or any other sport. Right in Chicago. So, the reality of that is that they've come with different versions of why to do it. The world needs needed U.S. soccer because. They'd basically, I'm going to call it, spent all their doll, spent all their money, or convinced everybody around the world as much as they could that soccer was the great game, except one nation, which was called the United States of America. They needed to get them on board. The on board part was you, you have a World Cup, you'll make money from the World Cup, and you'll seed a league and because obviously the following year 95 is the first year of mls and it was all around have a world cup convince everybody in america that soccer's viable and then we'll have a league and we'll leave enough money behind that you can seed your league well in the us we already have a league and now we're looking at a world cup i don't think so much as to seed it as I mean, in the long run, I'm going to say save it because right. you saw that the three owners were behind all of the, you know, the ones spending all the money on the bids is, you know, at least what I think the Wall Street Journal reported or one of the reports I read out there. So Major League Rugby is heavily invested in this coming year. And they're invested in it because they need America to accept it. I mean, MLS, um, MLR crowds haven't grown. They're not growing. Yeah. You know, if you put if you had three thousand people at a Nola game 
three years ago, you have 3,000 people at a NOLA game today. Now, obviously, there's going to be – I'm talking average it out, right? Yeah. And And so, you know, we – I mean, I don't know that anybody can name me an MLR franchise that is financially viable right now. Right. And therefore, therefore, how does it become financially viable? Well, obviously, it needs money from outside the rugby community. A Rugby World Cup coming to America – should bring money from outside the rugby community. How does that money get dispersed? When we're talking about spending 500, 600 million, when there's just, you know, 37 million was dropped in Japan in the lead up to that World Cup to make it a success. Like, who's writing the check? I presume World Rugby and, or, you know, who World Cup Limited, whoever's behind that LLC or whatever you call it. Um, and, and, and where is it going? Like, who's, who is it all going to go be funneled through USA Rugby and then they disperse it out to partner programs? How do you see that playing out? Well, the only way World Rugby will put money in the US is if is if it goes through USA Rugby. Okay, that's the only way they'll ever put money in the US. They they've made it very clear under you know when the number of times USA Rugby has been challenged by any organisation at any level, whether it be Enscro or anybody like that that have looked like they're challenging USA Rugby. World Rugby has made it very clear that when push comes to shove, there's only one organization in America recognized by World Rugby, and that's USA Rugby. So if you haven't got an affiliation with USA Rugby and you don't, or you don't have a signed, um, how can I put it, operating agreement with USA Rugby and follow USA Rugby's version of whatever it may be, whether it be, you know, player standards, whatever, you know, health standards, whatever it may be, if you don't follow all those, then you don't have World Rugby support. Therefore, you won't see any World Rugby money. So World Rugby is making a commitment here that they, the world is now at the point where, again, we have an international sport that recognises that you need the buying power and the commercial strength of the USA. And if you don't have it on board big time, then... Your whole your whole infrastructure is is in danger. The good news, the difference between rugby and football is that football recognised that in the 90s, and we're going to be in the 2030s when world rugby is going to see if what they're doing now pays off. It's so, a big difference. It's yeah, forty I'm... year different. It's a forty year difference. M- MLS has survived, and there are franchises that are profitable. Mm-hmm. And they're definitely profitable to the owners because when they change hands, they change hands for an incredible amount of money, right? Relative to what their what their economic standing should be. I mean, you have the Premiership in England, probably the richest league in the world, has clubs that survive on owners' handouts. They, you know, we have in the MLS, we finally have clubs that actually have a profitable balance of payments without an owner's handout. And in fact, most of the original owners have all walked away from MLS, I'd, I'd say very well rewarded because they've taken a, not thinking about running costs, but they've taken a, an initial investment, which if my memory serves me right, in, in when, when MLS franchises came up, I think you could buy one for 175 grand. Yeah. So in March of 95, you own something for 175 grand in in 2021, David Beckham's got a 500 million 
dollar venture called Miami FC. That means that something that people looked at in 94 for 175 grand, you're now looking at with half a billion, you know, 30 years later or whatever it is. Right. Well, if rugby could see that sort of growth, then the owners of MLR franchises will laugh all the way to the bank. The growth of the game will be assured to a certain degree. Um, and, and hopefully you would think that it would give us you know, a, a, a com- competitive national teams at all age grade levels, men and women. Is So it's obvious how important the World Cup is to MLR. And, you know, that's the trigger point. That's, you know, when they're all going to be, you know, for a company to go public and, and, and cash in and, and get rich, that's the MLR's moment there where their value is going to skyrocket and they'll go public, if you will, and, and, and their investment will... Yeah, they see that as the triggering uh, action for them to, you know, change the paradigm for their business. But isn't the MLR almost as important to the World Cup, at least the World Cup's narrative about what's going on in America? I've got to imagine that it would be a very bad outcome and one that World Rugby is going to be invested in preventing if MLR either... Frankly, first, if it folds, that would be a nightmare. But even if it doesn't grow or shows signs of stagnating, um, I would think those are all bad for the the narrative the World Cup is spinning. I mean, how important is the MLR to the World Cup at this point and to world rugby? Well, and, and therein lies the dilemma that we have, right? We have, what, we have 2031, it's 2022. We have to, we have to, we have to grow the game between 2022 and 2031 to meet whatever the whatever the goals were that our bid put forward to get the rights to host it to reach mm. those goals. And obviously, you know, if you look at if you look at other nations that have been successful, you know, you would need to have. Whereas by now, currently we'll call it, we have an average of, I'll be kind to say there's an average of 5,000 people per match per week in MLR. Well, we need that to be 15,000 people per match per week by the time the World Cup hits. Because if we look at those non, non-entity non games, I mean, if I go back to 2015 in the UK, you know, there were games played in, there were only three or four games played in rugby stadiums, and none of those games were games, don't get me wrong when I say it this way, were games that were, um, that considered, that anybody considered would be um, difficult to get a ticket for. I mean, USA played Japan in Gloucester, in, in Gloucester Rugby Club's facility. I believe Gloucester Rugby Club's facility holds. 15,000 people. Well, obviously, it's easy to sell out 15,000 people. But if we would to move that game to um, Cardiff, Cardiff Soccer Ground, and then and played there, we'd needed to have, to fill it out, we'd need to have sold 30,000 tickets. That's a big jump. And would you have done that for that game? Right. I mean... Well, and they're, they're talking they're, about making it not only, I mean, doubling the size of teams, which means less, more uh, uh, non-marquee games that are hard to sell tickets to, and they want to do it in larger stadiums. So they want to both add more seats 
and more games that it's going to be difficult to fill the seats with. Right. And quite frankly, history shows that that hasn't really worked. Yeah. I mean, the loss, if we consider New Zealand as a successful World Cup in 2011, yet it lost money, yet every stadium was full. Yeah. But their big stadiums aren't big, and their average stadiums are, are what we would what we would consider to be small. Yeah. So, you know, the only way that the only way that England made it work, because remember, you're only getting you're not getting the TV rights money. You're not getting the um, that's world rugby's. That's I mean, that's their operating funds. That's how they exist. So, like, they have to have a guaranteed ROI on each one of these because that's their entire existence. Right. Isn't isn't the World Cup, at least we're told, is what funds everything else. Absolutely, it's so a three hundred million. It's a three hundred million dollar enterprise. Yeah, they have to get somewhere between three hundred and I think originally it was like they have to get between three hundred and three hundred thirty million. This is before the pandemic, obviously. I don't know what the current numbers may be, but before the pandemic, they needed three hundred to three hundred thirty million just to operate for the next four years before the next one came around. Yeah, so. So when your World Cup, if you have a World Cup that falls short, the person who's going to be on the short is the host because World Cup's going to take their money out right away because they can't survive without it. So when they're giving Fiji a grant of a couple of million, they're giving it to them. I mean, in in the recent round of situations, they're giving it to them because poor old Japan had to front up 37 million. So Japan's basically paying the grant that went to Fiji, right? Yep. And that's the that's the thing. I mean, I had it put to me by a commercial uh, person who does rugby stuff and everything else, who said that if you were if you were honest about it, there's only two countries in the world that you can put the World Cup in and be pretty sure that the host will make a profit, and it was England or France, and that was based on the number of thirty five thousand plus stadiums. And the availability to for and the, and the ease and the availability for fans to be able to get there. So, what's your prescription then, Tristan? What do you what What do you think? You know, I, world rugby and people are enamored with college rugby, and I'm heavily involved in college rugby and have been for a long time. But I just don't see the ROI there. I think that if you seed youth rugby and high school rugby, which is where the real need is, um, where there's a lot less infrastructure and where there's a lot more room for growth and a ton more lower-hanging fruit to snatch. I think if you do that, then the knock-on effect will be college growth. Um, but what's your what's your prescription then? I mean, is it how would you divvy up the pie and what would be what's Tristan's path to success so that we can, you know, lose as little as possible and have the best party as possible? I'll be honest to say I don't have the, I don't have enough brains or intelligence to give you a straight answer on that one. I my you know we controlling costs on one end obviously is one thing, you know, having the right people involved with an understanding, you know, just because I mean, who is going to market our World Cup to American corporations? Who is going to do that job? If that's jobs done by by one of these I'm going to call it superstar organizations and that means that that means you've got to find somebody who, you know, I used to work with a guy by the name of Campbell in motorsport who could pick up the phone and he could call the chairman of Ford and say, hey, we need to do this. And 
if as long as he laid it out right, Ford would jump on board. If we've got people that we can go, if we can go find people and hire people that can, um, that can that have those contacts, then we can probably fund our Rugby World Cup so we can be pretty sure that we don't lose money. Do I? I, I don't believe that we have those people in house at this time. I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that we've probably even gone looking for those people yet. I think we probably went thought let's get the bid and then we'll worry about how we fill it yeah you know i mean if we look at 2018 we obviously need to do a lot better with you know with how we prepare and staff our world cup setup i mean 2018 was great if i was a spectator going to san francisco to watch that event then i'd have gone that was awesome that was absolutely brilliant but then if i look back at it and go yeah but usa rugby lost pretty sure the number was about $3 million doing it. That would tell me that there's $3 million that we didn't go find. Right. So if we didn't go find it in 2018, do we have people around us and do we know people that can find that money and they've got nine years to do it? So you can, you can knock on a guy's door now. And if he says, Oh, my budget's done for the next year, you go over. Well, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking seven years from now. Yeah. Speaking of and, people and money, the Warren Gatlin rumor that he's going to be the next head coach after 2023 and, <laughs> and succeed uh, Gary Gold. What do you, uh, how good of a move? What do you think of that, Tristan? Well, Warren Gatlin won't sell tickets, mate. No, a single Warren ticket. Gatlin's, Warren Gatlin's name won't, won't get us a million dollar sponsor for our national team. So we should hire Mark Cuban as the next head coach. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, no, that would probably not, sell a ticket. Definitely get a few headlines on ESPN. Well, and and look, the the reality is that whoever we have as the staff of any national team don't, aren't the ones that sell the ticket. Mm -hmm. They're not the ones that sell the sponsorship. So who, who, is it easier to sell for a winning program than a losing program? Absolutely. But no one... No one in any sport bases their ROI on winning everything. Yeah. Because you can't. You absolutely can't. Because you, you can't guarantee that you're going to win everything. So you can't do that. So you don't base it on that. You base it on what can I do with it and how does it and, and what's my return on my investment based on whether it be uh you know, website hits, whether it be column inches written, whether it be 30 seconds of in-focus exposure on a TV, you know, it's based on all of that stuff, right? It's the it's the same reason why I, I'm, I belong to a group called NBC Sports Game Changers. And after major events like the Kentucky Derby, it says, you know, I get a little email and it says, can you fill out our survey on the Derby? And it asks me what I saw. I've never got one of those from the USA Rugby. Yeah. But those are the things that we need to have an understanding of. We need to get out of – we're not selling rugby to rugby people now. Every rugby person in America knows we're getting a World Cup. But walk down the street and ask everybody, do you know, do you know what a Rugby World Cup is? Probably the answer is no. And then do you know we're getting one in America? And if they said yes, do you know when? No. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that conversation would go along those lines. Yeah. Because those are the people we need to reach, though, if we want to make sure that we're not in the hole for, I don't know, $50 million. 
Right. Yeah. Because every time we do something like that, we went all grandiose back in 2006 with promoting the Eagle games. When, when I first joined, when I first became a manager with the Eagles, we would do our own TV and everything else. And we would have 7,000 people go to Boxer Stadium in San Francisco to watch England versus, you know, the United States. And you make we money. We'd televise that and everything else. Well, the first thing was the TV production only cost us 40 grand, right? We did it on the cheap. And, you know, and, and at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we'd if we hadn't made money, we would break even. But then we decided that those sort of stadiums weren't the stadiums that were good for our image. And so we ranked it up a notch. Well, when we ranked it up a notch, I remember we USA played France in Hartford in Connecticut. And we had this gorgeous, huge stadium that we were in and 2,000 people. You know, I think, the stadium cost, I think the stadium cost more to rent than the whole production of England versus USA. There's this Everything, whole both. trend of in business, right? And we're now like, you're seeing like, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt or whatever doing, I think it's super pumped where he conveys, he plays the CEO of Uber. And then you got We Crash, which is, you know, uh, Jared Leto playing Andrew Newman, the CEO of um, WeWork. And you've got, talking about the unicorn era of business where it was just about mega growth and it wasn't about profitability. And as long as you could just grow, 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 you know, like the story of WeWork is they made, they reported and celebrated 1.8 billion in revenue, but it was the same year that they had 1.9 billion in liabilities. So they actually lost a billion dollars. And it was like this unicorn era kind of like in tech and, you know, it seems to mirror the like Nigel Melville, fake it till you make it fastest growing sport in America. And as long as the story we tell is huge, it doesn't matter how true it is. And while the rest of the world, uh, business world, seems to see that that unicorn era and the growth and fake it like that, that that era is kind of bubble is burst. World rugby seems to be like signing us up for another 10 years of it because that's got to be so much of the narrative, I would think, talking about what could be and what can be and living in the potential and on the horizon and not living in the six inches in front of us. Does any of that make sense? Absolutely. Makes total sense to me. It's the same. It's the same reason why, um, when the USA played New Zealand in Soldier Field, that event was a huge success, absolute huge success. Why was it? Because we suddenly found a bunch of US spectators. We did, funnily enough, in Chicago Land. I know numerous people. Who the first time they ever went to a rugby game in their life was they went to USA New Zealand. They they went because, A, it was at Soldier Field, iconic stadium. B, it was on the same weekend as the whole Chicago was feeling good because the Cubs had just won a World Series. And that you had a whole – everybody was on a high. We were all sitting on top of the wave. And Chicago happened to have USA versus New Zealand in Soldier Field. We had an NBC broadcast which had, which had made Wall Street Journal headlines because NBC had moved a Notre Dame football game – so that they could show the rugby light. You know, things like that. Those are the things that jump out to the people in the commercial world and the non-rugby person who doesn't care about, oh, good, I'm going to see Richie McCaw. They could care less who Richie McCaw is. Right. But those are those are the things that jump out of them. And when, when all that was happening, we were, great, this is awesome. And then the following year, we played Australia in exactly the same venue. Oh, I like, was at that game. Yeah, I was at both of those. And I think... And I think that we lost our shirt. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the same yeah, like why... 23,000, I think, is what they announced. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, because Aussies don't travel like Kiwis. They don't travel like Kiwis. Yeah. Kiwis will go anywhere in the world to see their rugby team. And if they're in America and you tell them in the middle of America, you can come watch the All Blacks. And it's going to be the All Blacks because they're on their way to Europe to go compete in the November window of internationals. You need to, you know, and so this is your chance to get a ticket for something that you may never, not be able to get a ticket for anywhere else in the world because it's in Chicago and there won't be enough Americans there to buy all the tickets. So if you're a Kiwi, you've got a pretty good chance of getting one, right? Right. I mean, and, and so you will travel to Chicago. I mean, I met Kiwis. I mean, obviously, I'm a bar owner in Chicago, and I, I met – if I met one, I met a 1,000 Kiwis that had come to Chicago just because the All Blacks were there. Even if they didn't have a ticket, they'd come to Chicago because the All Blacks were there. Yeah. I mean, I had a bar full of people watching the USA v. Mary game on TV in my bar because they couldn't be bothered to go out to Toyota Park, but they were Kiwis who were going to Soldier Field the following day and didn't want to do both events, so they just came in the bar to watch the game. Yeah. We don't. We didn't have that with the Aussies because the Aussies don't think that way. Yeah. Rugby isn't the primo sport in Australia. Yeah. You know, if we'd had an Aussie rules team playing an Irish Gaelic team in Chicago, we probably would have had a bigger crowd on that day. <laughs> that actually would have been an interesting game of rugby if you got an Aussie rules team against a Gaelic football team and make them play rugby. That'd be fun to watch. <laughs> so you know, and then and then the following year you had Ireland, New Zealand, which made all of which made USA, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Supported the whole concept of that idea, right? Because I think there was only two hundred more people at Ireland versus New Zealand than there was USA versus New Zealand. So it became pretty obvious to anybody who's just looking at numbers, you would go, if I'm going to fill a stadium up in a big city, I think the teams that I need to have in that stadium are Ireland or New Zealand. And we can throw the USA in there or we can just have Ireland and New Zealand. Yeah. But wherever we put them, we're going to have a big crowd. Yeah. That, that would be the take on that thing. So when so when someone said to me, oh, you know, we've got this huge event coming in Washington, D.C., you know, we've got Wales versus South Africa. I went, I hope not. <laughs> and they went, why? I said, because we'll be lucky if we see 10,000 people go. Let alone the fact let alone the fact that less than three hours away, we've got the largest college sevens tournament going on in Philadelphia. Yeah. Why would you go up against something that's already there? You're going to tell mum and dad they can't go watch their kid play in Philadelphia because they want to go to Washington, D.C. and watching international, all those things. It was like to me, like it, those are the disconnects that worry the hell out of me when it comes to us putting in bids for these, you know, mega things. I'm glad we got it. I just hope we don't mess it up. Any predictions, any parting predictions, Tristan? Any about the World My Cup? My prediction, so, it, I mean, we need to watch, we need to watch carefully how we grow into 2031. Remember that the players that we look at today will not be here in 2031. The players that we look at, that we need to look at is what are our U19, what's our U19 program doing now? What's it doing now? Because those, a lot of those guys are going to be our backbone. A lot of those, you know, all those people involved, 2031, 2033, we need to be looking at under 18s, under 19s today. We need to be looking at how do we develop those players? How do we keep those players in, in, in our systems? 
going forward. We need to look at long-range planning. One of the things that used to always get me when I was managing the U.S. men's national team specifically, because I had a lot more input into the budget and how we budgeted for it, um, was that every year we were a startup. Because if I left money in the budget at the end of a year, USA Rugby found a place to spend it and not just save it for the following year so we could grow a program. So, you know, we we had a uh, we need to make sure that that doesn't go on. We need to make sure that the planning for the event and the planning for the growth of our teams are are side by side. We need to make sure that the people handling our marketing are aren't just and and this is no offense to anybody who's recently graduated from school, but a recent graduate of a business school with a marketing degree is not going to be able to sell a $10 million deal to an Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. Somebody who can walk in the door, having having just made one phone call, can fly into St. Louis and walk into the executive VP's office for brand support or whatever in St. Louis, can walk right in the door and they shake hands on a first-name basis, is the person we need to hire. I wish I knew what his name was because I'd recommend him right here and now for us to go headhunt him. And Gary Vaynerchuk. Right. That's it. Gary V. That's who we need. I mean, yeah. I'm teasing. But yeah, be. I mean, but that's what we need, right? I mean, yeah. we have to have that level of. We have to have I that thought that was level. Kevin Roberts at one point. I thought that's what he was supposed to do for us. But um, Well, it, that was what it was written down on paper, but I don't believe. I mean, I believe that we lost. I mean, I know that under the Kevin Roberts guidelines, we lost a, uh, we lost a very good kit sponsor at the time who we'd worked for a couple of years with and had developed a brand relationship with the U.S. men's national team. And we kicked them to touch because my understanding was that the board said that it wasn't really a rugby brand and we needed a rugby brand to support us. And so we'd lost this relationship that we'd built and you know they ran off and left us and i think no sooner had we said yeah we're not interested in you guys anymore they went off and sponsored well a u.s company went to Wales, same as you know u.s companies going to new zealand or you know wherever it may be those u.s companies we now need to have somebody who's smart enough to not piss back. off under armor well there you go yeah all right, Tristan, this has been – I really – I'm glad I got you on, and I appreciate you uh, enthusiastically talking World Cup with me. And uh, I just realized our time has gone by, and we didn't – I didn't get any good, dirty, you know, tour stories. So I'm going to have to have you come back and talk to me some point and, and get some of those <laughs> those great stories on tour. I didn't get no bed bug stories. Kyle Sumption told me I had to ask you about the Lions that you actually owned, that you're like – that you're Joe Exotic of Chicago. I didn't know that. No, that was when I lived in. That was when I lived in New Jersey. New Jersey. So the, you were the Joe Exotic of New Jersey. So. Yeah, I had a. I had a. So to round that statement off, I had a pet lion called Sebastian, otherwise known as Sebi. And how, when? How long did you own him? Uh, till he till he needed to go to the game farm. <laughs> I gotcha. So he was about two and a half years old. I mean, he was a big cat. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, he he was uh, he was the real deal. He, but 
not the real deal in some ways. Like he drank from a hose pipe, which most cats, as you can, as you well know, would run like stink from anybody spraying water at him. Sebby used to just open his mouth and gulp it down. He thought that was great fun. Yeah. He wasn't, you know, he hadn't been brought up in cat land. So love it. That's awesome. Well, next time we'll get some more Sebi stories off you. Well, Tristan, I thank you very much for for chatting with me and and for coming on. And um, you know, let's uh, I'll be watching with you as this World Cup comes and goes. Yeah, look forward to it, mate. You have a good one. Thanks. Cheers, Tristan. Cheers, mate. Bye.